Romans chapter 8. Looking again at the golden chain of salvation. Romans 8, 29 and 30. We're continuing this deep dive into uh, amazing life-altering truth. And the idea of God foreknowing and predestining believers. And we're focusing today on the second half of Romans 8, 29. Okay, the part we didn't get to last time. We're going to look today at what we're predestined to. The goal to which God appoints believers. How God grows the family resemblance in us so that Christ is exalted as priority one. Okay, so that's the idea we're looking at today. If you're able, I'd ask you to stand with me as I read God's word. I'm going to read the same verses I've read the last several weeks. Romans 8, verses 28 to 30. And it's my privilege to preach. It's my privilege to read the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the privilege of opening up Bibles and reading your word. I pray, Lord, you'd have your way in our hearts today. pray that you would teach us, that you would challenge us, that you would lead us and guide us, all for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. There are five links in the golden chain of salvation in Romans 8, verses 29 and 30. Five golden links, five God-ordained acts. Foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification. God is the subject of all these verbs. God is the, is the point. God foreknew. God predestined. God called. God justified. God glorified believers. And the good thing is, we're talking about spiritual assurance here. We're talking about spiritual security. You can know for sure that God will finish and complete the work that he started. Philippians 1.6 he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 He who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. What is it? In that context, it is being sanctified completely and being presented to God. The believers are secure in Christ. God has an unbreakable security system on you in Christ. He outsmarted the burglar devil. You can read it in John 10. Jesus said, no one is able to snatch you out of my hand. And then he doubles down and says, and no one is able to snatch you out of my father's hand. Because I and the father are one. And so our reasoned response is to look at our lives and make our calling and election sure. 2 Peter 1.10 Be all the more diligent 
to confirm our calling and election by obeying the word of God and the power of the Spirit. And I want you to remind you here, I want to remind you that these truths we're looking at are meant for our assurance and our comfort and our edification. That's why God gives us these truths. This is to give us security in Christ. It's to let us enjoy the security we already have in Christ. Last week, we focused our attention on two actions that God took in choosing us before saving us before we ever existed. So we're kind of in the mind-blowing arena here of what God was doing behind the scenes before we ever existed. First was foreknowledge. Believers were foreknown by God. He knew us beforehand. He decided to put his love upon us in a saving way. The background of that word foreknowledge in the Old Testament is, is God knowing. When you look at that idea of God knowing, it's referring to his covenantal love where he sets his affections on those he has chosen. Parallel words are consecrate and appoint. Jeremiah 1.5, it wasn't just that God knew that Jeremiah would be a prophet, but that God lovingly chose him to be a prophet before he was born. Foreknowledge emphasizes God's love to us applied in the past that showed itself in an intimate choice. This is personal. God personally put his love upon you and it wasn't based upon anything at all that you would ever do in the future. Not your choice, not your vote, not your idea, not your request. Predestination is where believers were predestined by God. He chose us. He resolved to choose us for his particular purposes. He has predestined those upon whom he has set his foreknowing love, his covenantal love. You see, predestined is about the goal of God's choosing. In predestination, God puts his personal foreknowledge into effect. Predestination is the preordained plan of God that will 100% come true. In accordance with his will, this is what he decided to do. What he chose to happen. And in verse 29, the goal is clearly stated. It is that we would be conformed to Christ who is the firstborn. Now before I explain what that means, I think it would be very helpful to explain more and really illustrate the edifying truth of a believer being foreknown and predestined. So let's go back to those ideas and let's dig a little deeper and maybe I'll give you a couple illustrations that will help you maybe understand it a little bit better. Foreknowledge and predestination. These are the basis of God's electing work. Ephesians 1, verse 4, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Verse 5 says, In love He did it. So it was personal. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, and it's all to the praise of His glory. 
And those are not filler words, those are key phrases. It's to the praise of his glory. And it's according to the purpose of his will. It's according to what he said would happen. We make plans and we don't keep our word. Or we make plans and they're, they're foiled in some way. But God's plan is never foiled. God's plan always happens because he keeps his word always. Ephesians 1.11, it says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose, it's God's purpose, a purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his will. We don't get a vote in that matter. We don't get a say in that matter. This is what God decided, because he's God. It's about election. It's another a very strong, strong biblical emphasis god choosing his own it's a major theme in the word of god in the old testament in deuteronomy 4:37 it says he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them in psalm 105 verse 6 o offspring of abraham his servant children of jacob his chosen ones verse 43 he brought his people out with joy his chosen ones with singing the idea that God chooses his own is very strong in Scripture. Election emphasizes, by the way, the relationship of the elect to those who are not elect, to those who are not chosen. We'll look at this in, in Romans 9, but in Romans 9, 11, it says that though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Not because of our works, not because of our idea, but because of him who calls. You see it in, in 1 Peter. 1 Peter's writing to the elect. You see it in Titus chapter 1. Paul writes, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. He promised this before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. And I say all this to tell you this, no believer should ever feel threatened by the doctrine of election or of foreknowledge of, or predestination. They are always given in Scripture as the basis for our comfort, for the basis of our assurance, for the basis of our security. In foreknowledge, God sets his covenantal love on those whom he has chosen, and he preordains them to, pre, to, to predestination, to a plan that is 100% sure, 100% foolproof. Let me illustrate this a bit regarding believers being foreknown. Okay? Imagine you choosing to do something good for someone. Okay, you come up with an idea and you say, I want to bless this person. I want to do something good for them. They don't know I'm going to do it. They haven't asked for it. They know nothing about it. It will be a complete surprise. And you know you're going to do it and they don't know. And you plan out how you're going to surprise them with the gift that you plan to give them. I remember once when I was a kid, my parents surprised me with a brand new bike for my birthday. But instead of putting a big bow on it, they decided to do something more creative. They decided to do something a little more adventurous. And so what they did is they, they took the bike and they put it somewhere and then they tied a string to it. And then they took that string and just routed it all through the house and through the yard and around here, there and everywhere. And I had to start with the string and follow the string 
to get to the bike. And it was a bit of a, secure, a circuitous route, however you say that. It's this winding route to get to the goal, to get to the bike, to get to the gift. It was a total surprise to me. I hadn't asked for it. My parents planned it all out without me knowing anything, and I just followed the string. We follow the golden chain. We follow the golden chain of salvation in Scripture, and it tells us what God was doing before we ever existed. Now, regarding believers being predestined, you know, whoever was foreknown, God chose to set your lo- his love on you, then God predetermined a specific goal. He predetermined a specific goal without your knowledge, without your help, without your cooperation. And interestingly, you think about the goal, and you're like, but, but is it really going to happen? Am I really going to get conformed to Christ? I'm, I'm struggling in my life. I don't see the fruit. I don't see the progress. I'm, I'm insecure spiritually. I, I, what do I do? And, and this is what you need to know about God's foreknowing, God's predestining, God's purposes. It's kind of like this. Let's say you hire a contractor to work on your house. And you tell them, you say, I want this work done by a certain day. And they agree. And you're going to pay them a certain amount of money. And by this day, by this day, they're going to pay it. And then you're going to finish the work and you're going to pay them. And you find out that this contractor, not like all the other ones you know, this contractor doesn't keep their word very often. They don't show up. They don't finish the project on time. And you say to them, wait a minute. You said you were going to finish it on this day. So here's what we're going to build into the into the, into the contract if you don't finish it by this day you're going to owe me this much money or something and then we're going to double down on this and double guarantee it and we're going to get an insurance policy so that if you don't do this we're going to get we're going to get paid and we would have to do this right humanly speaking to get people to do things sometimes but here's the thing with god god planned it god promised it the work will get done the word will be kept how do you know Because he's always kept his word. He's never failed you. He always keeps his word. He's always faithful. He will do it. Foreknowledge and predestination stand strongly in Scripture without our help. They stand strongly in Scripture just as they are. And here's another thing you need to know. As Foreknowledge and predestination are standing strongly in Scripture just as they are. This is what else stands strongly in Scripture. Everyone is accountable to God and will be held responsible before God for their sin and their choices. And both are simultaneously true. They are not in competition. They are not mutually exclusive. They fit together perfectly in God's plan. However imperfectly we understand or explain them. And we must be very precise when we handle the word of God. 2 Timothy 2.15 demands this. We need to to handle the word of God accurately. Like a workman doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Here's what we need to be aware of. If you teach God's word in your desire to help it make sense to people, you don't want to inadvertently downgrade biblical truth to mean less than it really means. Scripture stands regardless of us. God uses us by his grace to explain the scriptures to others, but God doesn't need our help. The Bible is clear. 
I think the most important thing we need to do about foreknowledge and predestination and election is embrace the mystery. Embrace the mystery. When it comes to the doctrines of salvation, we're in well-charted territory and we're in way over our heads, are we not? We have to rest in the unfathomable goodness and greatness of God and know this, that our inability to grasp the truth, our inability to even embrace the mystery doesn't diminish the truth. I learned, by the way, about foreknowledge and predestination from the Bible. Not a theology book, the Bible. It's soul-thrilling. It's, it's biblically documented very well. And so if someone asks you as a believer, do you believe in predestination? Here's how you ought to answer. I don't fully understand, but God is God. I believe everything the Word of God teaches, and I'm not going to overstate nor try to explain away what God's word says. There's mystery to this. But God has revealed himself in scripture as one who elects, as one who foreknows, and as one who predestines. And God is most glorified when he is exalted as he truly is, as he has revealed himself in scripture. So when you look at these glorious gospel gems, they they mean nothing less than the highest praise to God. They need nothing less than the most credit to God. And so with that, uh, let's now focus on the the second half of verse 29. And this is important because if predestination, if the idea of being predestined stood alone with no amplification, it could be easy for you to think, well, it's just about being saved from sin and, and death. But the rest of the verse points to more. Look at verse 29 with me. Those whom God chooses, he destines for his chosen end. Those whom God foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Predestination's goal is the elect to be conformed to the image of Christ who is preeminent. God grows the family resemblance in those he has chosen so that Christ is exalted. Those God set his love upon personally in a saving way, he predestined to adoption into his family, they they naturally, supernaturally, show the family resemblance. And they acknowledge Christ's preeminence. And really, that's what we're going with today. These are the two points. First, the family resemblance will show. And second, Christ's preeminence will be acknowledged. So let's look at the idea of the family resemblance showing. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. The father loved the son and determined that he would save a people and make them like his beloved son. This is God's plan. Christ's likeness is the future goal. Conformity to Jesus Christ. It's not conformity to the prophets. It's not conformity to the apostles. It's not conformity to your favorite Christian celebrity. Nothing is more ultimate than being conformed to Christ. Conformed means similar in form. To have the same form with. It's the same word used in Philippians 3.10 where Paul is describing conformity to the death of Christ in his sufferings. 
It's the same word used in Philippians 3.21 where he refers to the future transformation of our humble bodies of all believers so that they would become like the glorious body of Christ in his resurrection. There's a similar pattern being shown here in verse 29. Now think about Romans 8.28 for a moment. It's not a standalone verse. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. The good that God predestined, the good purpose of God is the transformation of his people so that they take a similar form to the image of the resurrected Christ, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. We will be conformed to the image of his Son. Now you think about it, Jesus is the only person who has perfectly shown the world the image and glory of God. John 1.14 says the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says Christ is the image of God. Colossians 1.15 says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So the family resemblance is going to show. Now, it's not like you wearing a mask and pretending that you are someone else. But as you grow in Christ, God is going to make the family resemblance show. You will do it. It, 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 It's going to happen. This is going to happen. Now, conformity of believers to the image of God's Son reminds us of the future restoration of creation. It's eager longing for release from its bondage to corruption. It's earlier in Romans 8, 18 to 23. Image even takes us back to Genesis. Takes us back to Genesis where God created mankind in his image. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 5.1, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Now in Christ, God is restoring his image in us. In Christ, we are being renewed in the image of our creator. It was marred by sin. This is God's answer to the suffering that we plunged ourselves into in sin. When we worshiped and served the, the creature rather than the creator. And God has predetermined that we, whom he has chosen by his grace, from no merit of ours, that we would be conformed to his, to his image. Jesus is the pattern of the conformity. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, succeeded where the first Adam failed. Human beings were created to rule the world under God's lordship. The second Adam secured what the first Adam spoiled. We will bear Christ's resemblance. It is assured in the plan of God. There is no need to be insecure about whether this will happen or not. Our eyes can deceive us. You look in the mirror and you you don't see what you're hoping to see spiritually in your life. The transformation of believers will be in an ultimate way our, our bodies Our bodies will be 
resurrected like Christ's in his glory, we'll be freed from bondage to decay, that's what we're going through now, but we'll have freedom and deliverance. And here's what's going to happen. On that day, our status of God's children will be so obvious. You know, you might go to school tomorrow or go to work tomorrow, and, or you might even be talking to your family and you might say, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Christ. And they're like, really? I wouldn't have guessed. That's a scary proposition, isn't it? If you're a true believer, on that day, your identity as a believer will be so obvious. Our lowly bodies will be transformed to be like his glorious body. We will bear, 1 Corinthians 15, 49, we will bear the image of the man from heaven. And it's going on now, gradually. It's going on now, gradually. But then, finally, one day, fully complete. We have a hard time seeing how the golden chain is going to be completed in our life. We have a hard time seeing how God is doing what we know we can't do, and we know we're messing up at times. But see, before that day, before that beautiful day, there is this progressive growing, this change in Christians that God is, is bringing out. And we're cooperating with it. We want it to happen. We want it, we, we yearn for it to happen. And we are gradually being made more and more like Christ. The family resemblance is showing. Last week we were at the men's retreat and if I'm counting right, there were about 12 to 14 junior hires and high schoolers with their fathers. And I loved it. And it was so awesome that they were up there with their dads. And some of these dads and their sons, I've known their sons since they were babies. And I was struck by seeing like fathers and sons standing next to each other and being able to recognize the family resemblance that they're growing into. Like they're looking more like their dad or they're looking more like their mom. It's, it, it's, it's cool, and you don't recognize this some days, right? You, just, you don't see someone for a while, and you're like, well, you look just like your dad. Someone said that to me yesterday, like, you guys are twins. I'm like, well, 27-year-old, 27-year difference, twins, please, come on. But the family resemblance shows. And think about this, even if you're adopted, beautiful adoption, beautiful adoption. If you're adopted, you're not even blood relationships. You can still, you still catch the family culture. You, you catch the family resemblance through the way a family does things and the way they interact. Unique individuals in a family sharing common behavior and character traits. The goal of God's pre Destined purpose in your life is that you would be like Jesus Christ. This is the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. At his coming, Christ is going to exult with his many brothers and sisters who bear his resemblance. God calls his people to himself, invites them to be his and if you're a believer, before his bar of justice, he has already said not guilty. We saw that in the beautiful chapters earlier in Romans. Not guilty, justified. And at Christ's return, 
He's going to glorify his people. He's going to restore the glory diminished by sin. God foreknew his people. God predestined an outcome. Verse 29, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. The family resemblance will show and is already showing. Think about it. Have you ever had someone say to you, you, you act just like your dad or your mom? You notice this as you're growing older. You're like, I act just like my parents. I am making decisions just like them. I am I'm doing great things that I've seen them do, and I'm doing some things that really annoyed me. You know, let's say your dad was a physicist. People will say to you, you think like a physicist. If your dad was a policeman, they might say to you, you think like a policeman or a lawyer or a plumber or a teacher or whatever. The family resemblance will show, so therefore, let me just, let me just encourage you, embrace it. Don't put a fake nose on. Just embrace the family resemblance. What's that like? We share in the sufferings of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. We're gradually made into the likeness of Christ. And here's the most important part. Here's the most important part you need to get. Because we're talking here about sanctification. You might say, well, wait. Sanctification isn't mentioned right here. It's because it's all about it. From chapter 6 all the way through chapter 8. It's all about sanctification. God growing you in holiness. And now God is assuring us of this fact. But here's the most important part. Sanctification and conformity to Christ is primarily inward. It's an inward conforming. It shows itself on the outside. It's so easy for us to think it's just what I do, what I say, how I behave. But you can fake that. Or you can really mess it up. Do you know how many times do you act in a way that really doesn't reflect your heart? And you're like, I'm so sorry. That's not what, that's not what I meant. Right? But, but the good part is that sanctification and conformity to Christ is primarily inward. It's inward. It's not just outward conformity. It's inward conformity. Being conformed to the image of Christ. Being made like him. This is, this is internal first and it's internal primarily on an ongoing basis. Think about it. All day long, you're hanging out with yourself. You spend most of your time with yourself inwardly. You are thinking, you're reasoning, you're talking to yourself within yourself. You're navigating life. You're navigating situations. You're navigating relationships. You're having a continual conversation in your head. What I should say, how I should respond, how are things going? The question is, what's going on inside? Is it Godward, Christ-honoring orientation? Or is it you know, empty, self-seeking, self-serving orientation? Those who are being conformed to the image of Christ, those bearing the family resemblance, are going to grow more and more Christ-centered. Think about in your, in your family of origin. As you bear your family resemblance more and more, you become more aware and concerned about your family. You care deeply about them. But when you were a baby or an infant or a toddler, you existed in the family circle with a lot of attention pointed at you. Some people never outgrow that. People thought you were cute, even if you weren't. People held you. 
You smiled at them, but you didn't ask for much. You weren't actively serving the needs of your family. Any benefit you provided was secondary. But as you grow, and as the likeness shows, you're either, either going to be more concerned with your family's welfare, or you'll be more concerned with your welfare. And if you're more concerned with your family's welfare, you'll be a blessing. If you're more concerned with your welfare, you'll, you'll cause problems. Those called according to God's purpose, he puts in his family. The resemblance is going to show. It'll show inwardly. In your heart. You know. And it'll come out outwardly, gradually, in parts. But we will show the family resemblance. That's the first part. The second part here is that Christ's preeminence will be acknowledged in his family. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. It's a very important phrase. Let's start with that he might be. We say, well, I might take you to lunch. I might write you a letter. I might be nice to you. Might here is an assuring word. It's a common idiom for purpose. So might actually has future certainty attached. It's a statement of purpose. It's a statement of fact. That he is the firstborn among many brothers. Now in the Old Testament, Israel was God's firstborn. Exodus 4.22, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. But also in Psalm 89, verse 27, referring to the Messiah as firstborn. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Speaking of Christ. Jesus Christ is God's firstborn. Hebrews 1.6, when he brings the firstborn into the world, okay, Hebrews, it's all about Jesus being greater and better and over all. When he brings the firstborn, Jesus, into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. You go to Revelation, Revelation 1.5, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Firstborn refers to Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Declared to be the Son of God. Here's how Romans starts. Romans 1.4, declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's exalted as Lord. He's preeminent. This is Christ's status as the first human being released from the bondage to decay. 1 Corinthians 15.20 says Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. But I want you to know the focus of firstborn is not birth order. It is rank. It is greatness. It is supremacy. Firstborn reflects the priority and preeminence of Christ. He is God incarnate. We will never be. He is God incarnate. We are God's chosen children. We will never be more than that. That's an awesome thing, and we are being conformed into the image of Christ. Colossians 1.18 tells us that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have preeminence. Do you notice it says firstborn among many brothers? Many. That's, that's the key word here. It signifies the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant that all the nations will be blessed in Abraham. 
Genesis 12, 3. And Jesus Christ is the most notable of all who have become brothers by being made like him. Jesus is firstborn of all creation, firstborn from the dead, eldest brother in this family of God's sons and daughters. And he is son in a way that we will never be. He is son in a way not true of us. Firstborn is similar to first fruits. First to be raised from the dead and enter into glory, Christ paves the way for his brothers and sisters. So you become part of God's family through union with Christ. But here's what you got to get. And in America, we are so individualistic, it's hard for us to get this. You are part of one big Christ-like family. Jesus is first among many brothers. The world to come will not be ruled by a bunch of individual Christ-like people, but by Christ and his one Christ-like family. At the resurrection of the dead, our status as adopted children of God, again, so evident, settled, safe, secure, all together in Christ. God's purpose in conforming us to the image of his son is the brotherhood of Christ with many believers. God is the believer's father. Jesus is our brother. Many brothers and sisters share this relationship. Out of all those who have ever been born on earth, Jesus Christ is the preeminent one. There will never be another. He is always preeminent. He is the firstborn. This points to our adoption in God's family. Earlier in, in Romans. Romans 8, 12 to 17. The context is adoption. Adopted by God. Now related to the Son who is preeminent, who is first in priority. Think about it. Every family has a leader, head of household, patriarch, called by God to lead, serve, meet the needs of the family, ensure their welfare, will be held accountable by God to provide and protect. And family members are to give proper respect and encouragement to the head of household. Head of God's household is Jesus Christ. Priority one. His will matters. It's not a democracy. It's a sovereignty. He is king. What he says goes. He's not demanding, though. He is loving and kind and merciful and gracious. And what happens is God's grace in Christ changes you and causes you to prioritize worshiping Christ in all his preeminence. God grows the family resemblance in you so that Christ is exalted, praised, honored, esteemed. God set his love on you in a saving way, adopted you into his family to show the family resemblance and acknowledge Christ's preeminence. This is the essence of sanctification. And when it gets its final stage, nearing glorification, conformity of the body to that of the risen Lord at the resurrection, the culmination of growth in Christ-likeness, Due to the Spirit of God working, you will be in glory. Because of that, it's an easy call. We need to think, speak, and live Christ's preeminence. That's an easy call here. We have to be preoccupied with, if he is the firstborn, if he is preeminent, if he is overall, we need to be preoccupied with and immerse ourselves in Christ's preeminence. We need to put Jesus on a pedestal, like a lamp on a lampstand, we need to put him on full display and we need to think of him and speak of him and boast of him and look to him and rely upon him. 
is your inward life. And that will get lived out. It'll affect your words. It'll affect your actions. How could it not? Whatever you're most excited about is what you talk about. Whatever you're most concerned about is what you dive into. The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart, Jesus says. It's the overflow of Christ's life in you. It's like a pitcher of water getting filled to the brim over and over again. It's like a riverbed channel with water continually flowing through. Christ's preeminence will be acknowledged by his family. But if we're honest, we, here's, how, here's how we feel and here's the truth. We live double lives. We feel like acrobats. Talk like this and act like that. We often lack assurance. Now, now some people, to be sure, have false assurance. They think they're believers, but they're not. They've never been converted. They've never been born again. Some have absolutely no assurance. Some have inaccurate assurance. But some are going to say, Lord, Lord, on that day, and he is going to say, I never knew you. That's the knowing that counts. Now, you should never look at the word know, diff- K-N-O-W, the same. It means he knew you in a personal way. He set his love upon you, his covenantal love upon you. He predestined an outcome for you. And he says, I never knew you. That's the knowing that counts. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, the Lord knows those who are his. He chose them. He knows them intimately. See, in the final analysis, it's not that we say we love God, but that we know that God loved us and sent his son as the mercy seat sacrifice for our sins, and we love him because he first loved us, and we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Anything we do to diminish his rule and reign in our lives is sin. We should do nothing to displace or eclipse Christ's preeminence. There's a sad little vignette over in 3 John chapter 1, verse 9 about someone named Diotrephes who it says loved to be first. We don't want to be like that. But we push for attention. We want to be recognized. We want to be at the front of the line. But when we're secure in our relationship with Jesus as God wants us to be, the trajectory of our life reflects praise to God in Christ, especially, really, especially in life's toughest times. When, when the fog rolls in and all you can do is hold on for dear life to God's promises. Faithful is he who calls you, who will bring it to pass. God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship with his son. See, when you see Jesus for who he is, preeminent, you'll become less focused on you and more focused on him. Less focused on your problems and more focused on his purposes. You'll be awestruck at the the wonder that the preeminent Savior chose you. When Jesus is on the pedestal in your life, preeminent in your heart, you're going to want to serve his purposes. And what happens, the Bible tells us, you gain a good reputation, a godly reputation, and confidence in your relationship with God. So when you're thinking and you're speaking and you're living, how God has granted you eternal life, your soul rejoices, your mind fills with thoughts of Christ, your inward conversation with yourself exalts Christ, your words get chosen wisely, your actions get calculated to bring honor to God, you don't crumble in spiritual insecurity, 
You don't cower in fear, but you courageously live to the praise of God's glorious grace. You, you live free in Christ. When we talk about living free in Christ, you know, we share a load of guilt all day long sometimes. We, we walk around with, with guilt weighing us down. We've got things we did that just bark at us. We've got things we didn't do that bark at us. We've got the word of God clearly telling us our identity in Christ. Let's bring this to a close. Verse 29 tells us what we were predestined to. The goal to which God appointed us, conformity to Christ. God grows the family resemblance in you so that Christ is exalted as priority one. The best assurance is yielding to the Lordship of Christ, to live by the Spirit, to love the fellowship of believers, to engage others with the gospel, the gospel truth that God is the righteous creator and man is the depraved sinner and Christ is the sovereign, sinless Savior and he he died for our sins in our place and he was buried and he rose on the third day and he's coming back and we need to repent. We need to turn from our sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe the gospel. If that's you today and you're outside of Christ, you need to do that right now. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. If you're a believer and you're zeroing in on the gospel and you want to engage others with the gospel and you want Christ's preeminence to be proclaimed, remember this. Zero in on all ages. Don't leave any age group out. If you're walking towards someone, you go, ah, you know, they're too old or they're too young for me to talk about the gospel. Keep in mind this, 85% of people who profess faith in Christ do so between the ages of four and 14. You know what that tells me? Besides the fact that we need to get the gospel out to everyone in the world is that those who are older may be harder to reach. Don't give up. Realize that in a largely gospel-reached place like Orange County and L.A. County and California, there may be many, there are many who are ignorant of the gospel or actively opposed to it. So you have to proclaim it clean and clear from your life and your words. Because before time existed, God had a plan. God knew that we in Adam would sin, knew we'd rebel against him, in wisdom and love, he planned for the Son to step into history to be the ultimate sacrifice for sin. The sinless Son of God would suffer sin's penalty, would be raised from the dead, providing the way of salvation. First time the gospel was ever preached was Genesis 3.15. Adam sinned. God revealed the already made plan to provide a way of salvation for sinners. He told Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. He's talking about Christ. And God illustrated it back then in Genesis by making uh, clothing for Adam and Eve from animal skins, the first blood sacrifices covering for sin. And that was picturing Christ, the Lamb of God, who would die and be raised for our sins. So our security in Christ was planned so far in advance. God, when God killed those animals to clothe Adam and Eve, he knew it would be the sun one day. Knew before he created the universe, predetermined the sun would be the sacrifice for sin, predestined the cross so that those who believe could be saved for eternity. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God and was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It was the will of God. 
Hebrews 10 tells us, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. If you're a Christian today, God chose you. He set his love upon you in a saving way. He secured you in Christ, and he continues to keep you and save you so that you would trust him, and that you would worship him forever, and that you would exalt Jesus Christ as preeminent. Let's pray together. Lord, this, this makes us want to just fall on our knees and worship you. To cry out like Paul did, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from you and through you and to you are all things. And so, Lord, we pray to you, be the glory forever. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.